Hey, it's Abigail, and today we're reading the second half of Chapter 1 in The Wednesday Wars. Okay, let's go. Mrs. Baker eyed me all day on Tuesday, looking like she wanted something awful to happen. Sort of like what Israel Hands wanted to happen to Jim Hawkins. It started first thing in the morning, when I caught her watching me out of the coat room and walk toward my desk. By the way, if you're wondering why a 7th grade classroom had a coat room, it isn't because we weren't old enough to have lockers. It's because Camilo Junior High used to be Camilo Elementary, and until the town built a new Camila Elementary and attached it to the old Camila Elementary by the kitchen hallway and then made the old Camila Elementary to new Camila Junior High. So all the rooms on the third floor where the seventh grade was had coat rooms. That's where we put our stuff, even though it was 1967 already and we should have had hall lockers like every other seventh grade in the civilized world. So I caught Mrs. Baker watching me come out of the coat room and walk toward my desk. She leaned forward and as if she was looking for something in her desk. It was creepy. But just before I sat down, I figured it out. She had booby trapped my desk like Captain Flint would have. It all came to me in sort of a vision, the kind of thing that Pastor McLean sometimes talked about, how God sends a message to you just before some disaster. If you listen, you stay alive, but if you don't, you don't. I looked at my desk. I didn't see any tripwires, so probably there weren't any explosives. I checked the screws. They were all still in so it wouldn't fall flat when I sat down. Maybe there was something inside, something terrible inside, something really awful inside, something left over from the eighth grade biology labs last spring. I looked at Mrs. Baker again. She had looked away, a half smile on her lips. Really, talk about guilt. So I asked Meryl Lee Kowalski, who had been in love with me since the first laid eyes on me in the third third grade. I'm just saying what she told me. I asked her to open my desk first. How come, she said. Sometimes even true love can be suspicious. Just because. Just because isn't much of a reason. Just because there might be a surprise. For For you. For me? For you. She lifted the desktop. She looked under English for you and me. Mathematics for you and me. And geography for you and me. I don't see anything, she said. I looked inside. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong, said Meryl Lee, and dropped the desktop loudly. Loudly. Oh, she said, sorry. I was supposed to wait until you put your fingers there. Love and hand, sixth grade, are not far apart, let me tell you. At lunchtime, I was afraid to go out for recess, since I figured that Mrs. Baker had probably recruited an eighth grader to do something awful to me. There was Doug Swedek's brother, for one, who was already shaving and had been to three police stations in two states and who once been to nine jail. 
No one knew what for, but I thought it might be for something in the number 390s, or maybe even number 410 itself. Doug Swedek said that if his father hadn't bribed the judge, his brother would have been on death row. We all believed him. Why don't you go out for lunch recess? said Mrs. Baker to me. Everyone else is gone. I held up English for you and me. I thought I'd read this in here, I said. Go out for recess, she said, criminal intent gleaming in her eyes, uncomfortable here. Mr. Hoodhood, she said. She stood and crossed her arms, and I realized I was alone in the room with no witnesses and no mask to climb to get away. I went out for recess. I kept a perimeter of about 10 feet or so around me and stayed in Mrs. Sidman's line of sight. I almost asked her for her rain hat. You never know what might come in handy when something awful is about to happen to you. Then, as if the dread day of doom and disaster had come to Camille Junior High, I said, I heard, Hey, Hood Hood. It was Doug Swedek's brother. He entered my perimeter. I took three steps closer to Mrs. Sinman. She moved away and held her rain hat firmly. Hood Hood, you play soccer when you, you need another guy. Doug Swedek's brother was moving toward me. Hair on his chest leaped over the neck of his t-shirt. Go ahead, called the helpful Mrs. Sinman from a distance. If you don't play, someone will have to sit out. If I don't play, I'll live another day, I thought. Hood Hood, said Doug Swedek's brother. You coming or not? What could I do? It was like walking into my own destiny. You're on that side, he pointed. I already knew that. You're back, he said. I knew that too. Destiny has a way of letting you know these things. I'm a forward. I could have said it for him. That means you have to try to stop me. I nodded. Think you can? I suppose I could stop you, I thought. I suppose I could stop you with Bradley with a Bradley tank, armor two inches thick, three mounted machine guns, and a grenade launcher. Then I suppose I could stop you. I can try, I said. You can try. Doug Swedek's brother laughed. I bet that if I had looked over my shoulder, I would have seen Mrs. Baker's parent out of her third floor classroom window, and she had been laughing too. But the thing about soccer is that if you can run around a whole lot and never, ever touch the ball, and if you have to teach, and if you do have to touch the ball, you can kick it away before anyone comes near you. That's what I figured out I'm doing. Doug Swedek's brother. I wouldn't even, wouldn't even come near me. And I, and I would foil Mrs. B- Mrs. Baker's nefarious plan. But Doug Swedek's brother had clearly received instructions. The first time he got the ball, he looked around and then came right at me. He, he wasn't like a normal forward, who everyone knows is supposed to avoid the defense. He just came right at me. And there was a growl that rose out of him, like he was some great clod of living earth that hadn't evolved out of Mesozoic era, howling and roaring and slobbering and coming to crush me. I expect um, that the watching Mrs. Baker was almost giddy at the thought.
Get in front of me, screamed Get in front of him, screamed Danny Humphrey, who was our goalie. In front of him, his voice was cracking, probably because he was imagining the propulsion of a soccer ball. As a left up, we exposed our foot and hurled toward the goal, and wondering what it might do to his chest. I didn't move. Danny screamed again. I think he screamed in front, but I'm not sure. I don't think he was using language at all. Imagine a sound with a whole lot of high vowels, and and I think you'd have it. But, but it didn't make any difference what he screamed, because of course I wasn't going to get in the front. There was no way in the world I was going to get in the front. Doug's Express scored, he scored. It was just a game after all. I stepped toward the sideline, away from the goal. Doug's brother veered toward me. And I ran back a bit and stepped even closer to the sideline. He veered toward me again. So I stayed home for a scream of vowels, and Doug's sweetest brother growled so zeically. I, I felt my life come down to this one hard point, like it had been a funnel channeling everything I had ever done to this one moment when it would all end. And that was when I remember Jim Hawkins climbing up the side of his Benoia to, to steal her, tearing down the Jolly Roger flag, sitting in the cross trees and holding Israel hands back. Guts. So I glanced up at Mrs. Baker's window. She wasn't there. Probably so she wouldn't be accused of being accomplice and that then I ran toward the goal, goal, turned, and stood. I waited for Doug Swedish's brother to come. It was probably kind of noble to see. I stood my ground, and I stood my ground, and I stood my ground, until the howling and the roaring and the slobbering were about on top of me. Then I closed my eyes. Nothing says you have to look at your destiny and stepped out of the way. Almost. I left my right foot behind, and Doug Swedek's hairy brother tripped over it. Everything suddenly increased in volume, the howling and the roaring and the slobbering and the whistling of Doug Swedek's brother, airborne body hurled toward the goal, and the screams of Danny Humphrey, my own hollering as I clutched my crushed foot. Soon there came an iron thunk against the goal post which bent at a sudden angle around Doug Swedek's brother's head, and everything was quiet. I opened my eyes again. Doug Swedek's brother was standing and sort of wobbling. Mrs. Hinman was running over, though properly speaking. What she did wasn't really running. It was more of a panicky shuffle. She probably saw negligent play grab monitor headlines in her future. When she got to him, Doug's sweetest brother was still wobbling. She looked at her with her eyes, with his eyes kind of crossed. Are you all right? Mrs. Simmons asked and held onto his arm. He nodded once, then threw up on her. He had eaten a liver worse than egg sandwich for lunch. No one ever wants to see a liver worse than egg sandwich twice. And Mrs. Simmons' rain hat did not help at all. This was the end of the soccer game, except that Danny Humphrey, a very relieved Danny Humphrey, ran up to sum me on the back.
You sure did take him out. I didn't mean to take him out. Sure. Did you see him fly like a missile? I didn't mean to take him out, I hollered. I never saw anyone get taken out like that before, excluded Grand Albert. You took out my brother. I didn't mean to take out your brother. Everyone says you took out my brother. I've been wait waiting to do that ever since I was out of the womb. It was like a missile, said Danny. I limped back in school, trying not to look at an unhappy Mrs. Sinman, who was holding the wobbling duck Swedish brother at the same time that she was using her rain hat to do not very much. Hover worse is like that. Meryl Lee was waiting for me at the door. You took out Doug Swiggs' brother, she asked. I didn't mean to take him out. How'd he end up flying through the air? I tripped him. You tripped him? Yes, I tripped him. On purpose? Sort of. Isn't that cheating? He's three times bigger than I am. So that means you can cheat and make him look like an idiot. I didn't try and make him look like an idiot. Oh, and you didn't try and make... Me look like an idiot opening your desk for some dumb surprise and wasn't even there. What's that got to do with it? Everything, said Marilee, and stomped away. There, there are times when she makes me feel as stupid as asphalt. Everything. What's that supposed to mean? Mrs. Baker's face was pinched when we came back into the class. The disappointment of failed assassination plot. Her face stayed pinched most of the afternoon. Got even pinchier when the PA announced that Doug Swig's brother was fine. He would be back in school after 10 days of observation and that there was need for a playground monitor for the rest of the week. And Mrs. Baker looked at me. She hated my guts. We spent the afternoon with English for you and me, learning how to diagram sentences, as if there was some reason why anyone in the Western Hemisphere needed to know how to do this. One by one, Mrs. Baker called us to the blackboard try to try our hand at it. Here's a sentence she gave to Mary Lee. The brook flows down the pretty mountain. Here's a sentence that she gave to Danny Humphrey. He kicked the round ball into the goal. Here's a sentence that she gave to Macy. The girl walked home. This was so short because it used about a third of Mesa's English vocabulary since she'd only gotten here from Vietnam during the summer. Here's a sentence that she gave Doug Swedek. I read a book. There was a, a different reason why his sentence was so short. Never mind that it was a flat-out lie on Doug Swedek's part. Here's the sentence she gave me. For so falls out that what we have, we that what we have, that we prize not to the worth while we enjoy it, but being left in loss, why then we rack the value, then we find the virtue that possession would not show us while it was ours. So native speakers of the English language could diagram this sentence. The, the guy who wrote it couldn't diagram this sentence. I stood at the blackboard as hopeless as a seventh grade kid could be. Mr. Hoodhood, said Mrs. Baker, I started to sweat. If Robert Louis Stevenson 
had written a sentence like that in Treasured Island, no one would have ever tr tried to read the book, I thought. If you had been listening to my instructions, you should have been able to do this, said Mrs. Baker, which is sort of like saying that if you've ever flicked on a light switch, you should be able to build an atomic reactor. Start with what we have, she said, and smiled at me through her pinched face. I saw in her eyes what we have been in Long John Silver's eyes uh, if he had ever gotten hold of Captain Flint's treasure. But the game wasn't over yet. The PA crackled and screeched like a parrot, called my name, said I was to come to the principal's office. Escape. I put the chalk down and returned to Mrs. Baker with a song of victory on my lips. But I saw there was a song of victory on her lips already. Immediately, said the PA. I suddenly knew. It was the police. Mrs. Baker had reported me. It had been it had to be the police. They had to they had come to drag me to the station for taking out Doug Sweet's brother. And I knew that my father would never bribe the judge. He would just look at me and say, What did you do? as I headed off to death row. Immediately, Mrs. Baker said. It was a long walk to the principal's office. It was always a long walk down to the principal's office. In those first days of school, your sneakers squeak on the wax floors like you're torturing them. And everyone looks up at you as you walk by their classroom. And they all know you're going to see Mr. Goshi in the principal's office. And they're all glad it's you and not them. Which it was. I had to wait outside his door. That was to make that was to make me nervous. Mr. Gosh, Mr. Goshi's long ambition had been to become dictator of a small country. Danny Humphrey said that he'd been waiting for the CIA to get rid of Fidel Castro, then send him down to Cuba, which Mr. Goshi would then renamed Goshi Land. Mayor Lee said that he was probably holding out for something in Eastern Europe. He said he said he was, he was probably holding out for something in Eastern Europe. Maybe he was. But but while he waited for his promotion, he kept the job as principal at Camille. Camilo Jr. High and tested out his dictator with small country techniques on us. He stayed sitting um, behind his desk in a chair a lot higher than mine when I was finally called in. Hauling <coughs> hood, he said. His voice was high pitched and a little bit shrill. He had a lot of times standing on balconies screaming speeches through bad PA systems at the multitudes down below who feared him. Hood, hood, I said. It says hauling hood on this form I'm holding. It says hauling hood, hood on my birth certificate. Mrs. Mr. Gochi smiled his principal smile. Let's not get off on the wrong foot here. 
hauling. Forms are how we organize this school. And forms are never wrong, are they? That's one of those dictator of a small country techniques at work, in case you missed it. Hauling hood, I said. Thank you, said Mr. Goshi. He looked down at his form again. But hauling, said Mr. Goshi. We do have a problem here. This form says they pass sixth grade mathematics, though with a decidedly below average grade. Yes, I said, of course I passed sixth grade mathematics. Even Doug Swedek had passed sixth grade mathematics. He had grades that were really decidedly below average. Mr. Goshi picked up a piece of paper from his desk, but I received a memo from Mrs. Baker wondering whether you would profit by retaking that course. Retake sixth, sixth grade math? Perhaps she is not con convinced that, that your skills are sufficiently developed to begin seventh grade mathematics. But do not interrupt Hollinghood. Mrs. Baker suggests that on Wednesday afternoons, starting at 145, you might sit on Mrs. Hartnett's class for their math session. Somewhere, somewhere, there's got to be a place where a seventh grade kid can go and leave the Mrs. Baker's and Mr. Goshi's and Camilla Junior High's so far behind them he can't even remember them. Maybe on board this Hispanolia, flying before the wind, mooring by a tropical island with green palms crowding the mountains and bright tropical flowers, real ones, poking up between them. Or maybe California, which if I ever get there, you can bet that I would find the virtue that position would show us. But Mr. Gucci returned to his form and read it over again. He shook his head. According to this record, he said, still reading, you did not, you did pass sixth grade mathematics. I nodded. I held my breath. Maybe I could dare to believe that even a dictator of a small country might have a moment of untended kindness. Mrs. Baker does have a legitimate concern, it would seem, but a passing grade is a passing grade. I didn't say anything. I didn't want to jinx it. You better stay where you are for now, he said. I nodded again. But Mr. Goshi leaned toward me. I'll double-check your permanent record, Hollinghood. Be prepared for a change, should one be necessary. In case you miss it again, that's one of the dictator of small country techniques. Keep you always off balance. Mr. Goshi scribbled over Mrs. Baker's memo. He folded it and took out an envelope from his desk. Looking at me the whole time, he placed the memo in the envelope, licked the flap, and sealed it. He wrote Mrs. Baker on the outside. Then he handed it to me. Return this to her, he said. The envelope had better be sealed when she receives it. I will make a point of inquiring about it. So I took the envelope, sealed, and carried it back to Mrs. Baker, sealed. She unsealed it as I sat down in my seat. She read what Mrs. Go Mr. Gucci had written slowly and placed the letter in the top 
drawer of her desk. Then she looked up at me, forgettable. She said all four syllables very slowly. She could probably diagram each one if she wanted to. I watched her carefully for the rest of the day. Nothing ever gave away her murderous intentions. She kept her face as still as Mount Rushmore. Even when Doug Swedek's new pen broke and spread bright blue ink all over her desk, or when Rand McNally, map of the world, fell off its hangers as she pulled it down, or when Mr. Goshi reported during afternoon announcements that Lieutenant Tybalt Baker would would soon be developed deployed to Vietnam with the 100 Airborne Division, and we should all wish him together with Mrs. Baker well. Her face never changed once. That's how it is with people who are applauding something awful. And that's the end of chapter one. I hope you like listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye.